Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host Lizzie and today is episode 52. We're going to be heading back over the pond to London and we're going to be in the 1700s. Today's episode is all about Jonathan Wilde. Jonathan Wilde was a notorious figure in London's underworld who was remembered for breaking the law while assuming the persona of the thief-taker-general. A selfless vigilante, Wilde, a master manipulator and schemer, was well known for his unwavering dedication to combating crime in London. He was also skilled at recovering stolen property and bringing criminals to justice. But in reality, this alleged defender of justice was simply a gang boss, running a massive network of thieves, informants, and fences that transported enormous quantities of stolen goods throughout England and all over Europe. He earned a fortune in incentives for purportedly recovering goods that his own gangs had stolen, saving a sizable chunk for possible use as bribery. And it's a wild story today that we're going to be covering. But before we dive into Wilde and his background, I want to take a bit of time to talk about London in the 1700s. According to McCrum for The Guardian, London was separated into three areas in 1700. The city, London, the court, Westminster and St. James, and south of the river, Southwark, in divisions that still exist today. Its population increased from about 500,000 in 1700 to over 750,000 in 1750, and a million in 1800. Bristol, England's second city, had a population of just under 30,000, for reference. London was prone to unrest and rife with violence and sex. Astonished by the atmosphere, visitors to London also observed what one reported as the vast number of harlots wandering the streets at night. London at this time was the European sex capital. But London had another dark side. Crimes and criminals, according to White, author of London in the 18th century, knew no bounds of rank. Executions were a public spectacle, and suicide was prevalent. There was also a rise in violent property crime. With the Gordon Riots in 1780, London appeared to be headed for civil war. The system for apprehending and punishing offenders was based on regulations from 1285. 
and there wouldn't be an organized police force for around another century. Instead, uh, London used hue and cry tactics, which operated under the premise that members of the public would come to the rescue of people yelling for help in the event of a crime. Additionally, unpaid local males patrolled the streets at night and were known as night watchmen. They were intended more as a deterrence than as an actual way to apprehend offenders. The role of constable came next, and their duty was to maintain order and detain offenders and suspects. Being a constable was a one-year unpaid position. You'd also have to continue working at your usual employment during that time period. As you can expect, a constable wasn't really motivated to actively pursue criminals unless they knew they could make an arrest and be rewarded for it. A victim of theft could also publish a description of the thief in a newspaper. An arrest or even the return of their property could result from this. For individuals who were victims of a crime, none of this was good news. If the culprit escaped, your options for enforcing justice were incredibly limited. After that background of law and order in London in the 1700s, we're going to finally come to Wilde, who was the son of a carpenter and an herb and fruit vendor. Jonathan was born either in the English Midlands town of Wolverhampton or a village of Bonnygall in 1682 or 1683. However, neither the exact year nor exact place of birth are known. He obtained a basic education that was typical for the time, and then apprenticed for several years as a buckle maker. By 1710, he had apparently made his way to the capital of London because he was documented as having been arrested for debt and put to the Wood Street counter, a debtor's prison. He had previously married and had a son, but would have deserted his family when he traveled to London. Once inside of prison, he would begin working as a trustee, doing guard's errands. He would have earned the guard's trust to the point where they let him tag along when they were hunting for criminals, giving him his first taste of what it might be like to be on the right side of the law. Like Vidoc and Lensary, he discovered the prison to be a university of crime, where he studied the illegal arts. Additionally, he would meet Molly Milner, a prostitute, and the two forged a relationship that persisted even after their release. When Molly and Jonathan were released from prison, they opened a shop in Covenant Garden, and it's there they ran a fraud known as buttocks and twang. A passionate customer would be lured into a shadowy area by Molly, the buttock, when Jonathan, the twang, would smack him with a cudgel or a short, thick stick. Then, with little chance of being apprehended, they'd rob him, because half-conscious men who have their pants around their ankles are unlikely to give chase. The enterprise was so successful that the two quickly had enough cash to take over the King's Head, a bar that had become a sort of haven for thieves and other undesirables. Also during this time, Molly had begun acting as a sort of madam to other prostitutes, and Jonathan had begun acting as a fence or receiver of stolen property. He slowly started selling stolen goods and paying bribes to free criminals from jail. At some point, the relationship between Molly and Jonathan soured, and Jonathan severed her ear to identify her permanently as a prostitute. And Jonathan's next business venture was to establish an office and promise to retrieve stolen valuables for a fee. 
In addition, he accepted stolen goods from some of his more shady pub patrons and would offer those very thieves a portion of the reward money. Jonathan presumably already had the stolen goods or knew who had it when victims came into his office to seek assistance in recovering a priceless painting or a snuff box with sentimental value. And everyone would be content after Jonathan received his money and his clients received their stolen goods back. The company prospered, and soon Jonathan had gangs running all over London that were committing theft on command. He controlled protection networks and prostitution rings. He had a public persona, which was that of an unyielding crime fighter. But he eventually rose to become the ruler of London's criminal underworld. I previously mentioned that Jonathan was called a thief taker, and because Britain didn't have a formal police force at the time, law enforcement in the country relied on thief takers to catch criminals in exchange for rewards. Every time a criminal was apprehended, they received a reward. Victims could also offer rewards for the return of property, making it extremely lucrative. Because there was no formal police force, this could have seemed like a good idea. But there were significant issues with thief takers because like Jonathan, not all of them were honorable or decent people. Thief takers didn't hold official positions, so they weren't really held accountable for their activities, including a lot of corruption. Thief takers would use their position in a variety of ways to increase their own wealth. According to Conleaf for headstuff.org, Charles Hitchin at this time was serving as London's undercity marshal or more precisely as the public servant in charge of upholding law and order in the city. In 1711, he had paid 700 pounds to hold this office, which he would then use to coerce businesses to pay him bribes to steer thieves away from their establishments, as well as criminals to pay him a fee for protection. He too had come up with the idea of posing as a finder of stolen goods, but he was about to lose his job because he had been less than discreet in this plan. He then sought out Jonathan to assist him in keeping his thieves under control. After a while, the two joined forces and started to work together. Although Hitchin felt he no longer required Wilde after he was restored to his position in 1714. But at this point, Jonathan was already well established and the two would fight for dominance of the London underground. The fact that Jonathan was aware of every one of Hitchin's thieves gave him a significant edge, and those who refused to ally themselves with Jonathan were turned in in an exchange for payment. Hitchin desperately tried to discredit Jonathan as a phony, but Jonathan had the upper hand because he was aware of Hitchin's homosexuality, exposing this fact along with Hitchin's trips to gay brothels known as Molly Houses were sufficient to destroy Hitchin's credibility. So despite keeping his position, Hitchin ended up with very little influence. Jonathan described himself as the thief-taker general of Great Britain and Ireland in 1718. His evidence would result in the execution of more than 60 thieves. While his efforts to track down thieves were made public, his finding of missing property was kept a secret. The Old Bailey was bustling around Jonathan's office. Before even reporting their losses, people would come by and find that Jonathan's staff had already found their stolen goods. Jonathan would then offer to assist them in tracking down the offender in exchange for a premium. 
It's unknown whether Jonathan ever turned in a member of his own gang for a private reward. In 1720, Jonathan was so well known that the Privy Council sought his advice on how to combat crime. Unsurprisingly, his advice was to increase the rewards for information leading to an arrest. In fact, the prize for apprehending a criminal did increase from 40 pounds to 140 pounds in just one year, giving Jonathan a sizable pay raise. For years, Jonathan would live in luxury without ever facing any charges. However, this would change by the winter of 1724 because the government was growing uneasy and popular opinion about him had begun to shift. A former member of Jonathan's gang of thieves, Jack Shepard, made the decision to abandon the gang and go at it alone, which infuriated Jonathan. Shepard would be detained five times during the years of 1723 and 1724 by Jonathan's own thief-takers before being turned over to the law. While he was imprisoned five times, he managed to escape four. Because of this, he became a sort of folk hero among the city's impoverished, and Jonathan's dogged pursuit of him offended both the general population as well as the criminal underworld. This was especially true after Shepard's fifth and final capture when he was executed. Again, according to Conley for headstuff.org, Jonathan had purchased a boat to be able to transport all of the goods he couldn't quote-unquote return to Holland to sell. However, he made the error of enlisting thieves to staff the ship. The captain, Roger Johnson, removed the sum of money from the first mate's pay when five pieces of lace went missing. Enraged, the man reported the smuggling to the tax authorities, basically ruining everything. Jonathan would become embroiled in a dispute, which would lead to his incarceration. He basically caused a riot to let the captain out of jail because he feared he he might turn Crown's evidence. This overreach by Jonathan was disastrous. After witnesses claimed that he had initiated the riot, he was detained and accused of assisting Johnson in escaping. Jonathan was put on trial and accused of a wide range of offenses, included receiving stolen goods, placing others under arrest based on false information, and numerous other crimes. Unsurprisingly, he was found guilty. The night before he was hung, Jonathan tried to overdose on laudanum in an attempt to die by suicide, but he only succeeded in making himself sick. And the typical stops on the way to the gallows the following morning for the condemned man to drink at public taverns did not help him. On May 24, 1725, Jonathan was in a stupor, but the mass of people awaiting his execution, according to Daniel Defoe, was the largest ever to witness a hanging in the city of London. But if they were expecting a spectacle, they were going to be let down. The executioner, who had attended one of Jonathan's many bigamous weddings, gave him as much time as he dared to gather himself. The hangman's hand was forced as the crowd's mood started to shift towards rioting, and Jonathan was finally hung. In the dead of night, his body was buried in secret at the churchyard of St. Pancras Old Church next to Elizabeth Mann, his third wife, and one of his many lovers, who had died in and around 1718. But his burial would be only temporary. In the 18th century, autopsies and dissections were performed on the most notorious criminals, and consequently, Jonathan's body was exhumed and sold to the Royal College of Surgeons for dissection. 
In fact, his skeletal remains are still on display in the Royal College's Hunterian Museum in Lincoln's Inn Fields. Following his passing, satirists frequently used Jonathan as a means of criticism against the unpopular Whig politician Robert Walpole. One of the greatest works of English theatre from the 18th century, The Beggar's Opera, is the most well-known of these. It told the story of Peachum and McKeith, two street criminals supposedly modelled after Wilde and Shepherd, but in reality lampooned the political policies of the day by demonstrating that they themselves, the politicians, were just as self-serving as criminals. Despite the fact that a sequel had been planned, Walpole used his power to stop it from happening. And since then, references to Jonathan Wilde have appeared, most notably when Holmes referred to Moriarty as Wilde's successor. However, the thief-taker general, who was once London's most renowned detective, before becoming its most despised criminal, has largely been forgotten. And on that note, we've come to the end of another episode of Historical True Crime. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of someone you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com or on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.